Well, we're going to continue with chapter 7 and 8. Remember, we're taking chapter 7 and 8 of John together because they were given as instruction for us by the Spirit of God through John the Apostle for our building up. And we understand that chapter 7 and 8 all occurred during one festival, and it occurred during the Feast of Tabernacles. And we understood, and we talked about this last week in great detail. I won't go over it again, but we understand the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three feasts that the Jews had to go to Jerusalem for, along with the unleavened bread and harvest. They came to celebrate the, the deliverance from the wilderness and the wanderings of the wilderness. And they, uh, it's also called booths, and it's also called the Feast of Ingathering. They, they remembered that God is the one who gave them their bounty, gave them their harvest, and He's the one who rescued them and preserved them through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And uh, there are two significant events during the Feast of Tabernacles. The one event was the, the remembering of the water that came from the rock. And we looked about that in great detail in Exodus chapter 17 when God says, I will stand before you on the rock and you will hit the rock and waters will flow out. And we talked about the metaphor that, that Christ is our rock and that is substitutionary atoning work and the striking of the rock is a picture of the death, burial, and the resurrection and the significance of the flowing of the water is the Holy Spirit. We talked about that, and uh, so we talked about that in detail. And then we'll talk about today. The second significant event in the Feast of Tabernacles is the emphasis on light. And the light commemorated the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel throughout the wilderness and, and kept them from getting lost. And it directed them and it kept expelled the darkness. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was put between the Egyptians and the Jews as they uh, crossed the Red Sea. And it protected them and prevented them from being attacked before they were swallowed by the Red Sea. So these are two significant events that happened uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, and we're going to look at verse 37 today when we get to it, and then we're going to look at John chapter 8, verse 12, and we're going to see Jesus addressing these two significant events during the Feast of Tabernacles that are going to be the context of what we're doing. So uh, uh, last week we stopped on chapter 7, and we are in verse 16. And we're going to see Jesus as He disputes with those who do not believe Him. And He disputes, and that includes His brothers, that includes the Pharisees, the Jews, as well as all the other significant people that are followers, following Him out of curiosity. They really don't believe in Him, but they are following Him because of His miracles. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this section because I want to focus on the two... Uh, emphases of Jesus in these two chapters. So if you look at me, uh, with me, I am in uh, chapter 7 of John, verse 16. If you have last week's notes, we are going to start paragraph 3. We're going to start under Jesus' defense of His doctrine. And He's going to defend His doctrine in verses 16 through um, actually 30. And then again, He's going to pick it up in chapter 8. We're going to look at some of these. Uh, and then we're going to look at the uh, two main emphasis uh, on the uh, chapters. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 16. 
Jesus is standing. He's come to the feast. He's come to Jerusalem in the middle of it. As we talked about last week, He didn't come at the beginning. He came in the middle of it because He's got a purpose in coming at this specific time frame. Jesus speaking to the crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. John chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine. But it is His who sent me. If anyone wills to do His will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Let none of you, let, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses isn't broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So we're going to see Jesus is defending himself against the disbelief of the crowd. Uh, so we're going to look at a few of this, a few of his defenses, and uh, then we're going to look at chapter eight a bit. The first thing he says in his defense, and all of these things are new, are not new. They have been reiterated before in the book of John, and we'll look at them real quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but the first thing Jesus does, he says that my doctrine is not my own. Does anybody know what the word doctrine means? Teaching. My doctrine is not my own, but it is the doctrine of one who sent me, my Father. So, what Jesus is doing, he's saying, to commensurate my teaching, to defend my claims that I am God, which is the primary purpose of this book of John, he's saying, he goes back to the law. And the law says, out of the mouth are two or three witnesses you got to have to legitimize your claim. And that's where we get our doctor, uh, basic principles in law, basic principles in church discipline, that we have to have witnesses and we have to have cooperation Cooperation, cooperation of of a saying, or coll- is it collaborate? Collaboration. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> Corroboration. Is that right? So Jesus, in adhering to the Jewish law and in authenticating his message, says, My doctrine is not my own, but it is the doctrine of him who sent me, equating himself with God, saying that he came from God, and that his teaching is from God, and that he and God are one. They are the same. They are deity. He's the second person of the Trinity. So Jesus defends himself. He says, this isn't my teaching. It comes from my Father. Goes back to chapter 5. Remember chapter 5? As the four false witness, we look at John chapter 5. Uh, I could read the whole... I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, but... Uh, uh, 
John 5:36. We went over this in great detail. I have a greater witness than John the baptizer. He was the first witness. The second witness is a father. For the works which a father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me, and the Father himself who sent me testifies of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor you've seen his form, but but you have not you don't have His Word abiding in you because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. For these testify of Me. We talked about that in great detail. But you are not willing to come to Me that you may have life. Jesus is saying, My doctrine is not my own. I came from My Father. My Father authenticates My message. And we are we are God in one One God, three persons, I came to do my Father's will. Jesus defends himself against the disbelief of the people and to he wants to authenticate Old Testament law. Jesus did not come to break the law. He came to fulfill the law to the very dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. He came to fulfill it completely and he did so. And that's why he uses the witness of his father so that the Jews could not get him for breaking the law in any way. The second thing he does to defend his doctrine is what? What is the second thing he says from the notes? I love this. God's people know the truth. Verse 17. If anybody wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak of my own authority. So we've got God's people authenticate the gospel, authenticate the Christ. How does, how do we God's people authenticate who Jesus is? How do we authenticate that Christ is who He says He is? How do you authenticate it? We authenticate it by our abiding in Him. How else do we authenticate that Christ is who He says He is? Spirit-filled will be the primary evidence that we are God's people and being Spirit-filled allows us to abide in Him. There is no explanation for the change in my life except for God. A drunk... Everything else you want to say, there's no other explanation for me but Jesus Christ. Okay? And I know a lot of you story, and you're the same story. That lady right there has the same story. She wasn't a drunk. She's she's got problems, but wasn't drinking. (laughs) I know some of Dwayne's story. I know Val's story. And I know Sister Chris's story. And I know Russell's story. And I know his story. And there's no other explanation for this guy but Jesus Christ. Okay? And Russell, amen, Carol. Jesus 
is being alive and being God authenticates the change he writes, he writes in his people. Now, if you want to look at uh, just a few verses, uh, I think these are important to understand. Uh, look at John 16:13. I'm just going to quickly touch on this. We're going to spend uh, a a considerable amount of time on the Holy Spirit when we get to 14, 15, and 16, which is a primary teaching of those three chapters. But if you'll look at uh, just 16, uh, uh, chapter 16, verse 13, this is a, a taste. When the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you in truth. And He's going to speak not on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will tell you things to come. So the Holy Spirit authenticates the legitimacy of who Jesus is. Remember I've said any time, you can tell if a church is real or not real. One of the, If the Holy Spirit is emphasized more than Jesus Christ, that church is an error. The Holy Spirit is subjected... It is voluntarily subject to to prioritizing Jesus Christ, okay? And it's not gifts and charismatic and all that, feelings and emotion and, and the babbling of tongues. But the Holy Spirit's primary is to glorify Christ and to explain Christ, right? So we see that that is one way in the Spirit authenticates Jesus. And we see, look at let's look at another verse uh, a, a great verse, uh, 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 First John chapter two. This is going to dovetail with what Rusty said about biting. This is going to be the evidence that Christ is working in us, and that is First John two twenty. First John two twenty. You have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. You know all things. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. He is a liar, but he denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is an antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. In verse 27, But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you don't need that anyone teach you, but at the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie and just it is taught you and you will abide in Him. So the Holy Spirit authenticates Christ's legitimacy, who He is as the Son of God, and the Spirit abides with us and fills us and changes us. I don't want to spend a lot of time on those, but they're very important. Jesus is defending His doctrine, and the witness of the Holy Spirit would be a, a primary defense of who He is and what He does. The second thing, third thing we see is that Jesus seeks the glory of His Father. Jesus came to glorify the Father, do the Father's plan, carried out the Father's plan to perfection, and He did so. Everything He did, just as the Spirit glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, which is an evidence that Jesus is not about Himself, 
but he is defending himself because of his attitude of submission to his father. And we see that over and over in the Scripture. Uh, look at chapter 8. <laughs> Just go over one chapter, which we will get to uh, next week, Lord willing. Jesus said, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say unto you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Look at verse 54. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say He is your God. And we'll get into that about Abraham and and Jesus being before Abraham and Abraham seeing uh, Jesus' day, we'll talk about all that next week, I doubt it, but we'll, maybe two weeks. Jesus seeks the glory of His Father. Uh, nothing is more precious to me than John 17. I know I say that about every chapter. But if you read the priestly prayer of Christ, the prayer He prays for us, look what He says as He defends His defends his uh, ministry, his calling. Look at chapter 17, uh, 1, 4, and 5. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Talking about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Talking about the propitiation of sin. We're talking about the substitutionary atonement. We're talking about all that's accomplished at the cross glorifies the Son and it glorifies the Father because the Father planned it in eternity past and the Son carries it out. So we see that. We're going to see that in great detail. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. How did Jesus glorify the Father on the earth? Perfect obedience, sinlessness. He accomplished what the first Adam could not do. He came in perfect humanity and He satisfied the perfect, holy, righteousness requirements of the Godhead. So He glorifies the Father in His sinlessness. I've glorified you. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. I, I love that. It's, it's future tense, yet it's, it's written as if it's already occurred. I finished it and He hadn't done it yet. But it is going to be accomplished, and it will be accomplished. And the work that the Father gave him to do was he was going to die for the people the Father had given him. And all the people that the Father had given the Son to die for are going to come to Christ. And that glorifies the Father, and it glorifies the Son, and it glorifies the Spirit. That it's complete and perfect, and not one single failure. Not one single fragment of basket is remaining. We'll see that. We've seen that. He seeks the glory of His Father. <clears throat> and then in verse... I've read that. So we'll, so we see, we'll look at that. Look at the next one. Jesus, as He defends Himself... Jesus is, I don't have this in my notes, but I think I do. Jesus is sinless. We see that in verse, uh, we see that in verse 19. 
chapter 7, as he defends his ministry, he says, Do, did not Moses give you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Because, he says in verse 18, there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus is sinless. He's completely fulfilled the law. You are calling me a demon. You are falsely accusing me of sin. You're the ones that aren't adhering to the law. I'm sinless. There is no unrighteousness in me. And why is that so critically important to us as believers that Jesus is sinless? you got to know this. If Jesus had sinned, Jesus wouldn't have been God. And if there was sin in Him, then there is still sin in us. Right? He's the perfect sacrifice. So He is sinless. Know these verses. This is what basis we have for salvation. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus or Him, right? So Jesus, as He defends his, his who He is, His claims, it's critical that He be sinless. Because if He's not sinless, He's not God. And if, he's, if He wasn't God, that was just another man dying on the cross. And guess what? We are most to be pitied, Paul said, and we're still in our sin, Right? So, and then other verses that are fantastic, uh, just for your uh, uh, edification here. Everybody knows Isaiah 53.6. Who? Somebody look up 53.6, 9 through 12 and read these great verses to us. The sinlessness of Christ. Uh, And then somebody, uh, Melanie... uh, 3 5, 1 John 3 5. Somebody read Isaiah verses. The sinlessness of Christ defends his ministry as he defends himself. Who's got uh, Isaiah 53 6, 9 through 12, 6, and then 9 through 12? Good. The authentication that Jesus' ministry is real was just demonstrated, and it's demonstrated through our reaction to the word. And when our Gregs, and when our when our David 
David's can't hardly speak, can't read the bulletin without crying, or my wife can't read, that is authentication that it's real. And if that doesn't affect you in any way, shape, form, or fashion, and you're thinking to yourself, what in the world are you talking about? That authenticates something else within you. Okay, beautiful. Thank you for that. And 1 John 3, 5. Can you compose yourself to read this? I don't know. I have to listen to Melanie. I don't know if I can. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. He came to save us from our sins. And He don't just cover it. He takes it out of the way, as Sally brought up. The difference in the Old Testament toning and the New is... He just covered it in the old because it's a picture of what's going to happen. In the new, He takes it away. And it's not there anymore. It's the word blot. You look at the word blot in the Hebrew, it's, it's, like it's, been, it's like it never existed before. Perfect righteousness. Not, not guilty, perfect righteousness. There's a big difference between those two things, right? Not covers, not there. Removed as far as east is from west, cast into the bottom of the sea, remembered against us no more. That is the evidence that He is who He says He is. And I could go with some other ones just for your perusal. I'll write this up here. Uh, uh, heart-wrenching verses that speak to the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us as the sinless Son of God. So we got Psalm 92.15. And for my new people, I cannot write on the board. You'll never be able to read it. So I just say, lovingly, deal with it. All right? Let's look at, uh, let's look at the sixth evidence we see. Uh, is it six? One, two, three, four, five. The healing of the Sabbath. Jesus defends Himself that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. See, the Jews are so bent out of shape because of the legalism of the day where they've taken the Lord's day, which He's given for man, for man's benefit, and they've turned it around and they've made it a day of misery with 39 different rules to tell them how far they can walk, what they can do, and it just becomes a burden to them. So Jesus takes this and He teaches, as David Gibson, there's a point in what He's trying to say. Look at verse... Uh, verse uh, he says, verse 21, Jesus answered and said to him, I did one work and you all marvel. What work is He talking about? He's talking about the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, and he did it purposefully on the Sabbath day to make them think. And so he did, does it on a purpose. He does it in purpose. And he says, I did one work and you marvel. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that is from Moses, but it came from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If you receive circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses isn't broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely... Well, what did circumcision mean when the eight-day-old child had the foreskin of his flesh cut off? It was a sign. And what did the cutting off of that flesh mean? 
Pardon me? It's part of the covenant. Rachel asked me this one time, one this question, and nobody ever answered the question she asked me. Didn't you say that? Yes, you did. It sets you apart, but it signifies the cutting away of the old flesh and a changing in the new man. It's a cutting away of the flesh. Everybody, I don't want to be graphic. You know what that is. You got, you got little boys. If it's a cutting away of the flesh, it's, it's, it's a separation from dependency on the flesh, the law, and it points to a future time when we are in Christ, in the covenant community. So this circumcision, which is a cutting of the flesh, which is a sign of the new covenant, but Jesus says, you do that, you can do that on the Sabbath, and you're so legalistic, and that doesn't really do anything to a person's heart. It simply points to, and it is a sign. But Jesus said, I made a man completely well. I healed him physically and spiritually. I didn't just tell him to rise up out of his bed and walk. I told him to go and sin no more. And I did that on the Sabbath because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And I know why I created the Sabbath day. And it's to do good and not man, not evil. So Jesus says, you are so caught up in your legalism. And you allow certain things that fit into your legalistic context. But I made a man completely well to which circumstance? Circumcision pointed And so that is the difference between Jesus and the law. I am the fulfillment of what the law can only point to. And so Jesus says, I made a man completely well, which you're doing on the Sabbath, which is going to point to what's going to happen. So we see, everybody understand the difference there, the contrast between Jesus and the law, the contrast between just being a prophet and, and, and being God and having the authority to do these things. Yes, He is defending Himself because He is who He says He is, and He wants us to know that. Uh, uh, the next part, if a man, uh, da, 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 verse 24, we've talked about this before, and I'm going to spend a lot of time on it. As He defends Himself, do not judge according to parents, but judge with righteous judgment. And so Jesus defends Himself as the He judges perfectly. Man judges imperfectly. I can see someone doing something and I can say, Aha! He's a filthy, rotten sinner. But I don't know the motivation of his heart. I don't know anything about that person. It's based upon pure speculation and limited knowledge. But Jesus judges perfectly righteous based upon complete, ultimate knowledge of that person's heart, right? And so Jesus says, you judge according to appearance. I'm God. I judge with righteous judgment based upon my righteousness, not standard of man. Comparing me to Rusty, that's apples and that's oranges and oranges, both completely, perfectly inadequate, right? Jesus judges perfectly according to the standard in His righteousness. So we see that, that Jesus defends Himself. And then lastly, He defends His origin. Uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this. This is verse 25 uh, through 29. Then one of them, Jerusalem, says, Is this not He whom they seek to kill? But look, He speaks boldly and they don't say anything to Him. 
Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And Jesus cried out. Not many times do we see Jesus doing this, but he cries out as he taught in the temple, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. The peoples were always confused about Jesus' origin. They only saw him as a man, child of Mary. They accused him of being born of fornication with Joseph. They didn't understand that his origin was divine, that he was divinely. He came divinely as a man through the work of the Spirit. And they were always confused about his origin. And he was raised up in Nazareth. And as he was born in Bethlehem, they even forgot he was born in Bethlehem. We'll talk about that later. But Jesus' origin. That's right. They said that in chapter 7, verse 452. They say it, as Rusty said somewhat, uh, no, it's a verse, uh, 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 let's look at uh, this divine origin. We'll go ahead and go to this. 40, therefore many from the crowd, this is John seven forty. when they heard this saying, says, truly this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But others said, will Christ come out of Galilee? He didn't come out of Galilee. He came out of Bethlehem. Uh, and I'll get into all this uh, at some time. Uh, Hath not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? He did. There was a division among the people. They're confused. And then the authorities say, Are you from Galilee? No prophet has ever risen from Galilee. So there's always this confusion about Jesus in his claims to be God. They only see him as man. Yes, ma'am. There still is. There still is. Now, I didn't mean that to go for as long as it did, which always happens, but I want to really focus on this one right here. Remember I said that when Jesus came during everybody have this ever when Jesus came on the Feast of Tabernacles, he came to emphasize the two major points to celebrate the rock and the flowing of the water from the rock and to emphasize the light. And so in verse 37, Jesus is going to speak. And remember what we said, every day during the feast, a priest would walk out of the temple and he would have a golden pitcher and he would pour out the water from the pitcher and the people would chant, they would quote, they would sing Isaiah 12.3 which says, out of, the waters of sal- out of the rivers of water thy salvation cometh. And so they would sing this as the priest poured out the water to celebrate the water coming out of the rock which we talked about in great detail. And that guy and that priest did that every day except the last day. Never did it on the last day because this points it's to the ultimate fulfillment of this. So look what happens on verse 37. 
the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, when the priests didn't pour out the water, we see the fulfillment of the pouring out of the water. Jesus himself on the last day says, stands up and he cries, if anybody thirst, let him come to me and drink. Everybody understand the significance of that? This always points to something. Jesus fulfills it. And so on this last day, He is the water being poured out from the rock. He is the rock from which the Holy Spirit flows. Okay, So He makes this statement. And the statement is a general call. And it's to all men. Everyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We can preach this from the pulpits. We can preach this in the jungles of Africa. It don't matter. The call is to all men, come and drink from the water that is Jesus Christ. There are no preconditions to the call. I talk to a lot of people, and I have one right now that I'm talking to and have talked to. You don't have to fix yourself first. Right? You don't have to make yourself right or make yourself better. You just have to thirst. The, the, The thirst is a calling and a gift of God. It's His work. The problem is not in the call to men to come to drink. The problem is men don't know they're thirsty. Okay? There's no problem with this call. I've had had an argument with a pastor a long time ago in a church I left, and he said, well, that's not a sincere offer. I said, it's a sincere offer. I could offer I could offer I could offer Wayne a hundred thousand dollars if he could run a hundred yard dash in ten seconds. That offer is real and I could give him a hundred thousand dollar check. Huh? It wouldn't bounce. I'd have to get it. No, I mean, I'd have to get it out of here. But the problem is not with the offer. The problem was with Wayne's ability to run the 100-yard dash in 10 seconds. He can't do it. Right? That's right. And Christ has the money to pay you. And that's the illustration. It's not in the, the the problem is not with the offer, it's in the inability, right? So the offer is to all men, and there are no preconditions to the call. You just have to know you're thirsty. And that is the work of God that creates that thirst within your soul. And you realize there's something not there. There's something missing. And God's got to do that in you. 
And if God puts that desire in your heart and He gives you that thirst, you come to Him and He will satisfy that thirst. This does not contradict election. This doesn't contradict predestination. This doesn't contradict foreknowledge. This doesn't contradict particular redemption. This doesn't contradict irresistible grace or perseverance or preservation of the saints. It's a call to all men, if you are thirsty, come. So if you're thirsty and you're sitting here listening to me, you come to Jesus. And you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have anything within you, but you just got to have a thirst. And if you have a thirst, He says to come into me. And He promises, if you come into me, what? I won't cast you out. They shall be filled, Matthew 5, 6. So Jesus, as the fulfillment of the water comes out of the rock, you thirst, and I will satisfy your thirst. Everybody understand that? And we're on, a, we're on the next page in case you didn't know where we were. Okay? There is nothing you can do to make yourself ready for the water. You don't fix yourself. You can't earn the water. It's a free gift gift that flows from Christ. If you are thirsty, you call on Him. He'll satisfy your thirst. Look at 637. We've talked about it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. If you are sincerely thirsty, you call upon His name. He told the woman at the well at Samaria. He told her. He told her. Look what he said. Four, chapter four. Remember this. Four, fourteen. Whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst, but the water I give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So we see this call to all men, and we think, well, that's just an evangelistic call. No, 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 no. This is more than an evangelistic call. It's a call to everybody that's occupying a seat in this room. And the question I have here is this. This call is to the unbeliever, but it's also a call to us as believers. And the question I have here, do you still thirst for God? Remember the Psalm 42-2? You remember, you know what, have you ever chased a deer trying to kill a deer and a deer's running from you, afraid of you, or any other animal, and there's a panic, and there's a, and there's just a baneful thirst in that animal, you've, you've driven him to distraction, or whatever, and there's a desperateness there? As the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after you. And my question to me and to you is, do you have this thirst for God? That's still a work of God, but it becomes, what is the, what am I trying to say? Why do we have to still have this thirst and, and why do we not have it anymore sometimes? And it's true of every one of us in here. We go through these times in our life when we don't thirst for God as we used to. The difference between... Well, a minute ago you were talking about unbelievers don't recognize right. that we're thirsty. Right. As a believer, we should recognize that we're thirsty. We should be thirsty. And when we're not thirsty, it's because we're 
harboring sin in our lives and quenching the Holy Spirit. Why aren't believers thirsty? And uh, as usual, if you come up with an answer, that does not specifically say that you're going through that right now. So Sheila says, we don't know we're thirsty. We aren't thirsty anymore because we have unconfessed sin. And because of that unconfessed sin, we are quenching the Spirit, right? So the relationship is hindered. And we're doing the hindering, right? Why else don't we thirst anymore? The lamp broke. broke. That's all up here, right? The lamp broke. Because we want what we want when we want it, and we don't want what He provides. We are distracted. And there's a lot in this world to distract us. Sometimes we become too prideful. Prideful. What else? Now these are not you when you say this up here. So feel free. What other what other things that we do that that, that we're not thirsty for God anymore? And I'm going to put your name up here, Dwayne. We're going to put your little thingy up here, and we're going to put Dwayne. When you get out of His Word, when you when you stop spending time with the Lord and in His Word, then you can't thirst. Because you start believing what you think is right. Yes, sir? I think you can like sum all of that up into the term idolatry. A what? Idolatry is when other things replace God. And as, as, as longer we stay believers, we get distracted and prideful. And, and we're in our, in our, we, well, I'm going to focus on my grandkids. I'm going to focus on my kids. I'm going to focus on, and it's, and when we get older, it's, I'm going to focus on me. I'm retired. Isn't that, is that, is that a, is that true? It's not scriptural, but it's true. <laughs> And, and, and especially in the West, in the West, uh, huh? I know, I know. Uh, and uh, Greg and I have had this discussion, and him and I have mourned this, but this is what our idolatry becomes. We love this. Comfortable. And those of us who aren't comfortable right now, it's very, very difficult for us, right? Because we want to be comfortable. I've already raised my kids. Why well, I got to raise another one? You're keeping me from doing this. You're keeping me from doing that, right? Those of you who know our situations know what we're talking about. 
We get we get so, and then we and then we and you know we're told to be self-denying people, but we struggle with that, and we think, oh, we've earned this and that, and it's all a big delight, isn't it? And so that's why we lose our thirst for the Lord. No. We need fresh manna daily. We need the Spirit daily, daily, daily. Every day. I struggle with all these things. I do too. Congratulations. I realize what I'm telling God. I'm not satisfied with the way you're handling That's right. Wow, I'm going to put your name up there. You're, you're saying I'm not satisfied with how you're doing it. Wow. Exactly what uh, Eve was thinking before she took that fruit off that tree. Yeah. Yeah, and she uh, she'd sort of she was uh, wrong with the word. He never said you can't touch it. But uh, she added that, and uh, she just doubted God's Word. So all of these are why we don't thirst anymore. And if you are in this boat, uh, uh, God's Word would say to you, if you're thirsty, come into me. And that is why we study this Word. Not to, not to, uh, not to tear us down... But we have to be torn down and then we're built up so we understand that He's still there and we confess the sin and the broken relationship and the familial relationship has to be restored. If Austin does something against me, he's always going to be, I'm always going to be his dad, but the fellowship, if it's broken, it's the same way. We're still his children, but we've broken the fellowship. And we just all we need to do is admit it, confess it, and turn from it, and the relationship is he's never gone anywhere, right? But we lose the thirst. And then the question here, uh, uh, can you verse verse uh, number four, can you as a believer testify that God's spirit satisfies you? Does, as Wayne says, Sometimes we're not satisfied with how God's doing it. Uh, can you testify times when you are satisfied? And the great difference between that and what Wayne said? That authenticates who Jesus is, but uh, I just want you to... Are you now satisfied in Him? Is He enough? Is the way He's working in your life, although you may not like it, do you understand it's for your good and it's for the best and He's working something in you? And i got to tell myself that every day. Every day. You know, I think it's like Paul said, I've learned to be content whatever situation is in my life. I I'm still learning that. I do. I feel, you know, I get down to the range and I think, man, I'm going to really be... I've been satisfied down there. When we get down there, the stuff going on, I wish I'd back in water view, you know. And, and, you know and I'm just really haven't found perfect contentment. And I, I, you know, I know that the scripture said there's a man hunger and thirst after right and he'll be filled. And uh, I think 
with me. I just, I've been focusing too much on the things out here that I can see and not focusing on the Christ. We're all guilty. I don't know exactly how to do that, don't I? In our world. I know Paul said uh, all that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. That's a verse that I, I've told my group. I used to pray, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. Then I'd say, in the fellowship of your, surf, of your sufferings, if necessary. <laughs> With that little in parentheses, if necessary, which I really didn't want it and need it or want it. But what you're saying is part of the process of the fellowship, denying yourself, taking up the cross every day. It's not natural to you or to anyone in this room, right? One thing that yes. I also have recognized in my life is when I go to the Lord with a problem, He reminds me that there's only one perfect one, and that's Him and not me. And I've had to deal with it in that relation, that type of relationship and not, because He's never failed me. I failed Him many times. The excruciating thing of what Wayne has talked about that we all deal with, what I'm going through, what Chris and Jim are going through, is when you go through it all, it always boils down to your own wicked heart. (laughs) It all boils down to that. No matter what you go through. Whatever trial, it always boils down to Him against your own heart, right? He's told us that He's going to conform us to the image of His Son. And if that is indeed the scriptural truth, then He uses everything in our life to do it. Everything. Death, life, sorrow, trouble, trials, the fellowship of his suffering. Because he didn't know the fellowship until he what went through the suffering, right? He was taught righteousness by suffering, Jesus was, and so are we. Right? Righteousness in his life as a man, I, I, I meant to say. His ways are not our ways or His thoughts are not our thoughts and we got to trust that. We lean not on our own understanding. Uh, As Russell shared with me, he don't mind me sharing, through his speech trouble that he's having, he told me he's learned more about dependence on God in just this than he has in many, many years. And we don't understand why it's struggle for Russell to speak. 
But God's got a purpose in it. And look what he's teaching an 80-something-year-old dear saint. And he's going to teach you the same way. Right? I think I'm done. I hope it's been helpful to you. Uh, uh, We'll finish this up. uh, Yeah, we'll finish this up next week. What? She said, very good, but you finished. How do you deal with people that think that to be a Christian means everything is perfect? How do I deal with them? I just, I just, just share with them the truths of the world. That's just not right. It's not real. Which one of you dear saints would like to close us in prayer?